for leading us in prayer, and thank you, Peter and praise team, for shepherding our hearts and rejoicing and beholding the wonder and the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we're praying for all of you that you have a safe, safe Christmas. This has been... um, A strange season, getting stranger and stranger, especially as many of you have had friends or family members who have been affected in some way by what's going on in our world and by COVID as well. And this is um, probably one of the saddest times of the year to have to be in the hospital or to have to deal with illness and even more so for many sadness and anxiety and depression and struggling with many of the challenges that come our way at this season. And so our prayer for you as we prayed this morning before the service started, we just pray that you would have a safe Christmas. I want to exhort our church family, wherever you are, um, just to be mindful and to look to the Lord for that. But being mindful that the safest place for us to be is with the Good Shepherd, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to be with His flock. And this is not something that's new. For centuries, Christians have struggled to gather. Uh, For many years, there are many around the world in countries that are hostile to the gospel, where people have pursued Christ or drawn near to Him at the risk of their lives or the risk of their families' lives. And that does not mean, brothers and sisters, that we should be irresponsible. I want to exhort us all to be good citizens and to do the best we can to honor whatever standards are out there, whether it be masking or social distancing, to protect your loved ones and to put others before yourself. But at the same time, to exhort you to draw near to the Lord in prayer and to be creative. Because Christians for generations and centuries have persisted and have found ways in which to draw near to Christ and to draw near to the body of Christ. Why? because they are compelled by the love of Christ and because they have a treasure and a good news that's worth celebrating more than the things of this world. They celebrate and we celebrate and we gather together to celebrate a living Savior who is present with us and whose love is greater than our sin. And that's what we gather this morning as we get ready for Christmas to celebrate. And I want to fast forward you a little bit from what we just heard, the birth of Christ, to some 30, 30 plus years later. Where in John 8, Jesus stands in the temple at Jerusalem during a different celebration, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And during the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jews and Gentiles from across the world have filled the temple, and they've done so at night because they do so for the lamp lighting ceremony, far bigger than a Christmas tree. And this is an event where the huge temple lamps are lit, and they're lit up with fire. And apparently, historical documents say the glow was so great from these lamps being lit up at night as part of this festival that the entirety of Jerusalem would glow, and you could see the glow coming from the Temple Mount throughout the darkness that surrounded Jerusalem. And to the the crowd that had gathered around Jesus at this time, beneath the bask, likely, of these huge, huge lamps and the glow of the fire that lit up the evening, Jesus, in verse 12 of of John 8, He declares to them, to a crowd that's gathered, perhaps the AV team can help me with my first slide. Thank you so much. He declares to them, he says, I am the light of the world. This is the verse that's on our website. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then he goes on in verse 34, a little bit lower in John chapter 8, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin 
is a slave to sin. So anybody who's ever sinned in their life, well, in fact, it's not just an isolated moment, Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're in bondage. You are, in, you are a slave. You have a master, and that master is sin. And then he goes on in verse 36 to say, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, try putting those words on a Christmas card or your Christmas Instagram post. Be interesting to see what the responses are. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This Christmas we put, Julie came to me and said, What what do you want to put on our card? And we, we put the verse that we read earlier from Matthew. Um, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from their their sins. And I'm sure many who read that card, and we designed that card in particular for many people who don't know the gospel, as they read that, they're like, what is this about? You know, it's not a charmer. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Christmas. This is what we celebrate. We celebrate a Savior who has come to set us free from our enslavement to sin. Advent, brothers and sisters, is the celebration of a Savior who is indeed the light of the world. But clearly the darkness that Jesus is talking about is more than just the night sky. He's talking about the darkness of sin that enslaves all of us. He's talking about a Savior who has come in love and has entered into our darkness, not just the darkness of the people who are sitting next to us, our darkness, to do what we will not And what we cannot do for ourselves. Which is to set us free from the sin that enslaves. Not some of us, brothers and sisters, but all of us. Democrats and Republicans, black and white, all of us. And this is the testimony of God's Word. This is a testimony of Jesus. And it's a testimony that begins in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn back with me again this morning to Genesis chapter 3 where God shows us why His Son had to come into the world to be born in a manger when there was no room in the inn. Why is there a Christmas? Well, Genesis 3 lays the foundation for that, even as it shows us the bondage and the enslavement that we all have, the bondage and enslavement to sin. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die." But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes But both were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. As we noted last week, the Christmas story does not begin in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. It begins in Genesis, and Genesis chapter 1, where God gives us a gift. And that gift is a life and a world that is filled with His light and His life and His love. And it's a world and a life that is free from sin, and it's free to love and to serve God and to serve one another without shame or guilt. This is the life and world of God's holy and living Word. But in Genesis 3, sin enters this world, and it does so to destroy and enslave this world one life and one lie at a time. 
And that brings us to our first point for this morning. Sin exchanges the truth of God for a lie. Sin exchanges the truth of God for a lie. In John chapter 8, as Jesus speaks that truth, I am the light of the world. There are many who allegedly say they believe in Jesus and are His followers who become offended. And after John 8, they leave. And in fact, a number of them desire to kill Jesus there in the temple. What could stir up such hatred and such animosity? Well, it's Jesus making the point that they are slaves, that they are not free, that they're in bondage to a lie, that they are in bondage to sin. It's never a charmer or something that makes people feel good when someone tells them that they're sinners. It's not the place we go to. Oh, when you share the gospel, don't talk about sin. When you do Christmas cards, don't talk about sin. You'll scare people off. And yet Jesus is doing this in love. He's doing this in love because His desire is to set sinners free. He does it because sin exchanges the truth of God for a lie. And that's where the destruction begins. If you ever have the privilege of spending time with those who have struggled with addiction. Maybe it's addiction to substance. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography. Maybe it's an addiction to gambling. Maybe it's an addiction to their career. But if you ever have had that privilege of spending time with those who have struggled, but actually hit rock bottom and have started to come out of that struggle with addiction, you may hear them talk about, quote, not believing the lie. Not believing the lie. And part of that lie that they're talking about is that somehow this pill, this powder, this pornography will give me a better world, a better life, or a better time. It's the lie, brothers and sisters, of covetousness. We talked about this with our boys yesterday. What is covetousness? Covetousness is the desire to have something that God has not already given you. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a marriage. It's that desire that somehow there is something out there that is better than what you have and you should have it. There's a better life to be had than the one that God has given me. There's a better marriage to have than the one that God has given me. There's a better career or friend or church or situation than the one that God has given me. And it applies to cars and careers and spouses. And like all good lies, there is some truth to it. Like all good lies, there's some good truth to it. The truth, more often than not, is that for a minute or a moment, whatever substitute that you're looking at, it does indeed give you a more pleasurable world. For a minute or a moment, it does indeed exalt you and lift you up. For a minute or a moment, it does indeed make you feel high and lift it up. For a minute or a moment, it does indeed make you feel like you are on top of the world and everything else is underneath you. For a minute or a moment, it gives you the feeling that there is something you can do or say to make everything better. Just press that button on the computer. Just take that pill or that substance or that drink. For a minute or a moment, the worm that hides the hook does indeed taste good. Sin, brothers and sisters, always tastes good for a season. But like all great seductions, it lifts us up to bring us low. It sets us free for a minute or a moment to enslave us for the rest of our lives. In verse 1 through 3, the serpent does exactly that. He engages the first woman in a dialogue that lifts her up. He flatters her. It gives her a place that she did not have before according to God's Word. He gives her that position where she can be the servant leader. 
The one alone whose opinion matters more than anybody else. The one who is wise. The one who is able to pass judgment. The one who is able to say. The one who is able to say when we start and when we stop. And he lifts her up above God's Word in order to raise doubts about God's Word. He lifts her up above God's Word in order to raise doubts about God's Word. That's always, brothers and sisters, how it happens. You become the expert so that you can become God. And the implication by, the, by Satan or the serpent's conversation with Eve is that there is a better life and there is a better way apart from the life and way of God's Word. That's always Satan's lie, brothers and sisters. It's the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. It's what Instagram and social media and all of those things do. There's something better out there. There's one click away where someone else is having a better time than you. And of course, this is what Peter says to Jesus. When Jesus says, I've got to go to Jerusalem in Matthew 16. And I'm going to be humiliated. And I'm going to be rejected. And I'm going to suffer at the hands of the religious establishment. Why? Because that is God's Word. Because this is what is necessary to save sinners from sin. A lamb must be sacrificed and pay the price for our shame and our guilt. This is what's necessary. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, no way that's going to happen to you. There's a better way apart from God's plan. Brothers and sisters, we can lend ourselves so we're just like the serpent or Peter, where what we say to other people is really coming from the devil. There's a better way, and there's a better life, and there's a better option apart from the one that God has already given you. Typically, for most of it's us, it's when we have to deal with the reality of, of suffering and difficulty and adversity that exists in this world. How can God be good if, if I'm going to suffer? Well, having gained the woman's ear in this way, in verses 1 through 3, by lifting her up and raising doubts about God's Word and sort of hinting and suggesting that there's a better option out there. The serpent now in verse 4 proceeds to speak into her life in a way that only her Lord or her husband should. Very interesting. That, verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, this is something that before only God has done in Adam's life and only Adam, the first man, has done in the woman's life to share God's Word. That role, brothers and sisters, be careful about who you give the authority to speak into your life. Who has that right or that leadership? Men, who is speaking into your life and who has that authority? Is it the Lord? Ladies, wives, is it the servant leader that the Lord has put in your life? However much he fails or falls short. Well, here, the serpent has taken that role and the woman has willingly given it to him because he has flattered her and he's lifted her up and he's given her something that her husband cannot give her. A place apart from God's Word. The serpent uses this opportunity quite simply to replace the truth of God in her life with a lie. Of the Lord God's promise about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of which God has said that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17 The serpent authoritatively tells Eve in verse 4, you will not surely die. And in this way, what the serpent does is, not only does he contradict what God says, but even more so, he introduces this idea that God's word is not true. He introduces this idea that the Lord God is a liar who cannot be trusted and that there is a better way or life apart from the authority and order of God's Word. There's a secret, brothers and sisters. It's a book. It's called The Secret. There's a secret out there that shows you that ticket and that way in which you can have something better than what you already have if you just learn that secret and you learn that way. interesting here, brothers and sisters, is that the serpent never comes up to Eve and says, disobey God. The serpent never comes up to Eve and says, you know, take over for your husband. 
serpent never comes and explicitly says, uh, you know, God's a liar or his book is not true. He just comes in and he implies, 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 implies. And he's selling and he's selling and he's selling. And brothers and sisters, whether it be a car or a career or a spouse or a drug, this is always the lie. And in verse 5, the serpent then sells the lie. And he sells the lie by putting God down. He puts God down in order to lift the woman up. He says, for God knows, in verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The implication here is that God is not just a liar. God is a rival. See what Satan's doing here? God's not just a liar. He's a rival. He's someone on the same level as you. This is what he does. And this is always the lie. The lie, it works this way everywhere, brothers and sisters. And sadly, we see it in our leadership today. In our nation. It's the ad hominem attack. In order to sell your lie, you've got to tear down the person who stands in your way. So you attack their character. You bring them down a few notches. You say a few things and you slander so that they look like they're small in order to make you big. That's how you sell the lie. Well, that's what Satan is doing here with the woman. And the man as well. God is not just a liar. He's a petty rival. He's a withholder. He's a concealer. He's a controller who uses his word to hold you back from the secret of a better life. A life that is independent of his word. A life that is capable of becoming great like God. This, of course, is the sales pitch for everything in our world. From our colleges to our careers our marriages, to our family lives, from our public school and private school and home schools. All of these things. It's selling the lie, brothers and sisters. There is something that you can do or something that you can say or some path or steps that you can take to have a better life apart from God's Word. And the darker side, of course, we see this and we know this well. Those of you who are physicians and Pastors, the wounded healer. There's something I can say or do that's going to change your life, that's going to save you from whatever you're struggling with. Oh, Pastor Mark, if you could just say this, this will fix my marriage, this will fix our friends. There's something that we can do, and we see as many men in pastoral ministry step into this lie as well, that somehow we can save people or save their marriages or save their lives. I can't tell you how many times in medicine I heard that statement. We're here to save lives. And I I, I, quite frankly, brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how often that pervades ministry as well, where people feel that there's something that they can do to save someone else's life. When in fact the testimony of God's Word is God alone is the one who can give us His light and His life and His love. Brothers and sisters, that's the sales pitch of all idolatry. It is the worship of ourselves and what we can say and do as opposed to the worship of what God can say and what God can do. It's a sales pitch of covetousness. It's the sales pitch of adultery. And it starts, brothers and sisters, with a lie that sows discontent in our hearts. A lie that sows discontent by saying you deserve better. It's the lie, brothers and sisters. It's the lie that says, does God really exist? Is God really good? Why, if God really exists, and if God is good, why hasn't He given me, and you fill in the blank, better job, better spouse, better car, better friend, better relationship, whatever it is that you want to fill it in with. And At Christmas, brothers and sisters, that is amped up on steroids from every commercial and every event where there's that massive Christmas tree with all those gifts and Lexuses and whatever else that's under that tree. 
And we drink that Kool-Aid, brothers and sisters, on a daily basis year-round. And we are surprised at a later date when we suffer from disappointment, anxiety, and depression, and despair. When we find out that those things last for a minute. But they don't fix our marriages, they don't fix our homes, and they don't fix, brothers and sisters, what's broken inside. It's the lie, brothers and sisters... That there's something that we can do or say or purchase apart from God's Word that's going to give us a better life and going to fix what's broken in our lives. It's the lie that God and His Word are not sufficient. Basically what we're saying with all of that. I need all of these things. And if I don't get all of these things, my life is a mess. Why? Because... God and His Word, it's not enough. The lie that we know better than God. This, brothers and sisters, is the lie that enslaves us all. And by appealing to our pride, it shows us all. It shows us all, brothers and sisters, all the wonderful things that we are going to gain but it fails to show us everything that we will lose. Fails to show us everything that we will lose. This brings us to our second point for this morning. Sin corrupts and enslaves our hearts with a lie. Sin corrupts and enslaves our hearts with a lie. And this is what happens to that first man and woman, even as they choose to exchange the truth of God for the serpent's lie. They do so one thought and one desire and one step at a time. And in verse 4 and 5, neither Adam nor Eve, they make no protest whatsoever to what the serpent has just said. No objections whatsoever. Neither of them. And instead in verse 6, the first woman voluntarily, willingly chooses to walk away from God's word one step at a time. And she chooses not to wait for the Lord because she could have said, well, let's talk to the Lord. He walks in the garden. He comes. He dwells here. She could have even appealed to her pathetic servant leader who was there silently, not saying anything. But at least she could have helped him by saying, Adam, what do you think? Instead, she willingly voluntarily chooses to take the lead. She willingly and voluntarily chooses to investigate for herself the serpent's claims. She willingly and voluntarily chooses to re-examine the tree and its fruit. And what she's doing here, brothers and sisters, is she's playing God. Moses uses the exact same language here, and it's not by accident, of what you see earlier, where God goes and creates, and after He creates everything, then He says, and He saw it was good, and He saw it was good, and He saw that it was very good. Well, He uses a similar language, because now Eve has taken the role of God. She's decided to play God. And brothers and sisters, we do it too. I know in the Chin household... The chin boys are very upset with Adam and Eve. Because they feel, man, we're in this mess because of you. And there is some truth to that. But let's be honest about it, brothers and sisters. We're each responsible and we buy this hook, line, and sinker and we do it too. And it's because we're children of Adam and Eve indeed. And we are corrupted from within and the lie has corrupted our hearts too. How often do we say in a similar fashion to what Eve has done? Well, I have to see for myself. Well, I have to decide for myself what is true or good. I can't tell you how many times in ministry I've heard that statement. How many times I've heard, well, you know, Pastor Mark, I'm the sort of person I have to make my own mistakes. I have to find out for myself. Ho, ho, ho. But really all that's being said when we hear that is, I have the right to play God and I have the right to choose and make my own mistakes. Don't tell me what to do. And brothers and sisters, when we go down that path, just like Eve, what it is, it's an evidence that our heart and our desires are enslaved to the lie of sin. That we bought that lie that we can be God. 
And we can roll away from God's Word and His authority and His order in our life and we can somehow get away with it. And even if we blow it, well, we'll pick ourselves up and we won't make that mistake again. We'll learn from our mistakes. But brothers and sisters, when you see the pattern of darkness in the world, people don't learn from their mistakes. They do the same things over and over and over again. And we see the same patterns that exist with children to adults to grown-ups had the opportunity of phoning and catching up with a college roommate. It was interesting to hear 20, 30 years afterwards the fate of what's happened with the men who we went through college together with. And what's scary is the way in which the same patterns that existed and the small lies and the small deceits and the small choices that were going on in that college dorm room They were only amplified by a legal degree or a jewelry business or a successful life and career. All of those things just amplified. And that path has continued over and over again. Because sin corrupts and enslaves our hearts with a lie. And as Eve begins to live that lie, that somehow apart from God's word, she knows best. Look what happens in verses 4 through 6. Or excuse me, verses 6. What happens is she begins to believe and to live that lie is the forbidden tree and fruit begin to look different. It begins to look desirable. It begins to look like something you need to have. It begins to look more desirable than everything God has already given Adam and Eve. God has given them a garden. God has given them plenty. God has given them life and light and love. But suddenly, as the lie corrupts the heart and rules the heart and enslaves the heart, suddenly the one thing that's forbidden... starts to look what's to to be what's desirable and what's most desirable and more desirable than everything else. More desirable than even the light and life and love of God's Word. And brothers and sisters, you know we, we live that out on a regular basis. One time where I went to the physician's office and and had the lab work done and discovered and was told that You know, you have high cholesterol, so you're going to have to watch your diet. Never did I crave a cheeseburger more. You know, it's like, man, I want that steak. I want that ice cream. It's in our nature, brothers and sisters. We're children of the fall. We see for Eve what is most desirable is what has been forbidden. Well, that's the lie. And why? Because now Eve is being led... And she's looking at everything through the lie of the serpent. That is what's ruling her life. It's the adulterous and covetous desire of sin rather than the light of God's Word that is leading her heart and her desires. And it's leading her by continuing to yank on that cord of her pride. She's being led, if you notice verse 6, by what her eyes show her rather than what the light of God's Word has shown her. So as we come to verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Well, what was her husband doing? The servant leader of God's Word. What was he doing all this time? Well, it says at the end of verse 6, it shows us what he was doing all this time. It says, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. What was her husband doing all this time? He was with her, right there. And he ate. He's been with her the whole time. And rather than leading, and rather than protecting with God's word, here's how wicked he is, even more wicked than the woman. He silently waits And he watches, allowing his wife to lead and to be the guinea pig. 
And when she doesn't drop dead immediately from eating that fruit, then he comes and he takes and he eats. She's gone, maybe God will get me another one. Brothers and sisters, we think of sin primarily as a visible mistake. A one and done. A whoops. But here very clearly, as Jesus shows his disciples, idolatry, adultery, theft, and murder, they all begin in a heart that is given over to deceitful and prideful desires. Deceitful desires that celebrate the lie that God and His Word do not matter. That God is not looking and He does not care. So great, brothers and sisters, is the lie. And you see this graphically illustrated, sadly, with those who have struggled with substance abuse. Where even if a policeman is watching, or even if someone is standing right there in front of them, it will not stop them from doing what they desire to do in order to get whatever that fix or that high. Now, brothers and sisters, that's not just substance abusers. That's every sinner who will do whatever is necessary, even if someone is standing right there. It's the denial and the foolishness that God does not exist or does not care. And in this way, brothers and sisters, what we're really doing is we are tearing down God in our thoughts and in our hearts. And we are doing so in order to exalt ourselves and justify ourselves. That's exactly what we're doing. God, you don't exist. God, you don't matter. Spouse, you don't exist. Spouse, you don't matter. Friends, you don't exist. Friends, you don't matter. Because the only one who matters is me. Because what I'm doing is justified and I'm right in doing it. And here's why I'm right. Had a bad life. You didn't treat me well. Blah, 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 blah. The whole list of different excuses and blame shifting to say I'm justified in doing what I'm doing. And brothers and sisters, as we see this, we see the same pattern all the way through Scripture and you'll see the same picture and pattern in the world if you care to look around. That all of these things happen long before we ever take or eat what God's Word has forbidden. do this long before we take or eat what is forbidden by God. For a while, a long time ago, I think that what what shocked me when we first got into biblical counseling is in the way in which spouses who were cheating on their spouse would demonize their spouse. And you'd know the spouse was cheating and the spouse was guilty of adultery and you'd come in for marriage counseling and the spouse was cheating and doing horrific things to his family. Or her, I guess, in, in one case I know of. And as you sat down there, the, the counseling session opens with the person who's cheating and destroying this family just ripping into their spouse. The same pattern, brothers and sisters. But the one that we're really ripping into when we do that is we're ripping into the God of the universe who created us and who gave us a life of light and love. That's the one who we're ripping into. We're coming to Him and saying, the woman you gave me, or the man you gave me, or the life you gave me, it's, it's terrible, and that's why I'm, I'm doing A, B, C, D, and E. You're the one who forced me into this. And brothers and sisters, this is what is so wicked about sin. Sin is our wicked desire to murder the God who loved us with His Word. Sin is our wicked desire to erase Him out of our thoughts, our hearts, and minds so we can do whatever we want and so we can play God. Brothers and sisters, that's every sin. Big, little. Sadly, in the end, we end up destroying what is most precious. The life that God has given us we end up destroying ourselves. James 1.14, James says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
This brings us to our third, but don't worry, it's not our final point. There is hope. Sin separates us from the light and life and love of God. Sin separates us from the light and life and love of God. In verse 7, immediately after eating the forbidden fruit, just as the serpent promised, partial truths, just as the serpent promised, Adam and Eve, their eyes are indeed opened. And now they do indeed know evil. Whereas before they had only known good. And indeed they do not immediately die. At least physically. But now they begin to see that the good life God had given them is no longer. They begin to see that everything has changed. And not in the way they had hoped or had been led to believe. It says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Whereas before there was nothing about themselves that needed to be covered or concealed from God or from one another, now everything about us needs to be covered and concealed whether it be with fig leaves or clothing or fashion items or cars or cosmetics or careers or Bible verses or ministry or the endless list of things that we use to cover up our inadequacies. Something we can say or do to cover what is broken inside and communicate to the world that we're just fine. Through the first man and woman, sin and death, have now indeed entered into God's creation. Now everything has been reversed. And where once there was only holiness and innocence and righteousness, now there is guilt and shame and condemnation. And where once there was only love and joy and peace, now there is lust and discontent and strife. And where once there was perfect freedom for the child of God, Now there is only fear for those whom sin has enslaved as orphans and enemies of God. And having stepped away from the light of God's Word, Adam and Eve have fallen from the mountain of God's grace. And they have plunged all of humanity into the darkness and death and enslavement of sin. Brothers and sisters, this is our world and this is our nature. I challenge anyone to prove to me otherwise. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Brothers and sisters, Sinclair Ferguson makes the point that Christmas, for some people, is the best of times, but for others, it's the worst of times borrowing from Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. That's worth noting. If you've ever worked in the hospital system or if you've ever worked in a psych ward, you know what things are like at Christmas time. It is indeed the best of times, but as you see those hospital admission goes up and the mental illnesses go up at that time, you realize that it is not a sweet time for everybody. In fact, very often it can be a time that is filled with great suffering from loneliness, anxiety, and depression. And in fact, the Christmas season is considered by some to be a time and era where depression can be at its highest. Recall when I first started as a family physician, the Jewish doctors probably, with a snicker, said, Mark, you're the new guy. Why don't you take care of Christmas? And the calls that would come in were just relentless of people who were hurting and lonely and struggling. Relentless. And brothers and sisters, Christmas, more than any time of the year, but especially this year with COVID, is a time where there is very real suffering for many people. And we who are not suffering in those ways, we need to have compassion. We need to pray for these people. We need to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And those who have need to give, especially when what we have is the light of God's Word. But as we look at this world that is filled with suffering, where does it start? Well, as we come back to Genesis 3, we see where it starts. We suffer, brothers and sisters, because we live in a world that has turned its back on the light 
and the love and the life of God's Word. A good God who has given us everything we need. Greatest of all, He's given us Himself. And brothers and sisters, we live in a world that's turned its back on that in every aspect of our lives. Our marriages, our Christmases, our careers, all of those different things. And we're shocked and surprised when life starts to get disappointing. When things don't turn out as we had hoped or expected. When we discover that everything that has been promised... Well, some of it we get, but then we discover that we've lost far more. And it turns out different than we hoped or we expected. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And in the end, it's always that same lie that somehow we can replace God and His Word with what we say or do or buy. And what we end up losing is the only God and the only Word that cares to give us true light and true life and true love. Brothers and sisters, if we really saw the world and our lives for what they truly are, apart from God and His Word, we would all be depressed. Because we would realize that we are indeed slaves of sin who are helpless to save ourselves. But then, brothers and sisters, that is what would make Christmas sweet. Whether or not you have a big Christmas tree or brand new cars under that tree, whether you have friends or whether you can see your families. Because Jesus has come to those who cannot help or save themselves and He's come to save us from our sin. This brings us to our final point for this morning. Jesus brings the light and life and love of God's Word for sinners like us. Brothers and sisters, why is Christmas worth celebrating? Even in the midst of COVID or shelter in place. Even if there are no gifts or gatherings. Even if there is no room in the inn. Even if Ikea is closed and there's only a manger for a crib. Well, the angels said it, didn't they, in Luke? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the angel said it to Joseph, And you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's a promise, brothers and sisters, from God himself. Now, if you don't believe in God or you don't believe God's Word is good, or you do think that maybe some of God's Word is true, but some of it is not, then those words are meaningless. But if you know God for who He truly is, that He is the Creator of the universe, that He is the God of light and life and love, and that He does always keep His promises... And these words, brothers and sisters, for the worst of sinners are marvelous. And you shall call Him Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Done deal. Where there is darkness and death, Jesus will bring the light and life of God's Word. And where there is only guilt and shame and condemnation and fear, by His death on a cross, He will bring forgiveness. He will bring righteousness and He will bring freedom from sin. And where there is only lust and discontent and strife by His Spirit and His Word, He will bring love, joy, and peace for those who by faith are willing to receive Him as God's Word says He is, as Savior and Lord. To them, He will give the right to be called sons of God. Children who no longer live for themselves or their sin but instead, by faith, are free to live for the one who loved them and gave his life for them. Brothers and sisters, this is why the heavenly host in Luke that we just read, that Garrett read to us earlier, this is why they are celebrating. Because the heavenly host can see what our lies and our sin does not allow us to see. They see the bondage and they have witnessed it from the beginning of time. 
these angels and the heavenly hosts who are, who are celebrating, they have waited for thousands of years and they have watched unfold the destruction as we have destroyed ourselves and those around us as slaves of sin. And the promise of God has come and this child in the manger is evidence that God does indeed keep His promises and where there is only death, He brings life. And where there is only darkness, He brings light. And where there is only hate and destruction, He brings love. And He brings it right in to the heart of where these things rule. Why? Because He is greater than our sin. This, brothers and sisters, is the joy that lit up the sky. And then we see with the shepherds what happens. We see a reversal, brothers and sisters, of what we see in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, the serpent speaks into the life of Eve, and she listens to the lion and embraces the lion. Then she goes and looks and sees to discover for herself whether this is indeed true. But in Luke chapter 2, it is the word of the Lord that has come to lowly shepherds in the middle of the field. And what exactly do they do? They listen to the word. The authority comes in. The light comes in. And they go to find for themselves to see if this word is indeed true. And as they do so, they leave their sheep in the field to go and find Jesus lying in a manger. And they glorify and praise God for all that they have heard and seen. Why? Because it is just as had been told to them. For those shepherds, brothers and sisters, Christ has come to take the lie so that the truth can come and reign in their lives. Brothers and sisters, for us, we have to ask ourselves, will you leave your sheep in order to come and see and worship a child who the rest of the world looks at, lying in a manger, too poor, too isolated, too lonely, too rejected. Will we come and allow Him to take these lies that rule our lives and instead give us the truth, the truth that unto us this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord is born. So we fast forward and come to John chapter 8 again. As Jesus comes to those people who are gathered around during the festival of lights. And he says to them, I am the light of the world. Many in that crowd will walk away. Why? Because the light and the truth that has come exposes the lie. That somehow they're good because they've gathered from all around the world to come to the temple in Jerusalem. They're God-fears. They're good Jews. They're where they supposed, they're supposed to be. They're celebrating in the center where God's law has said the godly people are. They're fulfilling the traditions. And you're telling us we're slaves to sin? And yet, brothers and sisters, when the light of God's Word and His love comes... And it shines light into our lives. It begins by showing us what's truly ruling our lives. And it does so in love, brothers and sisters, to set us free. But that day and that moment when Jesus made those comments, some of those people wanted to kill Him. And they would rather stay in darkness and rather believe the lie that somehow there's something that they could say or do to continue to be quote-unquote good people rather than believe that the one who stood before them is indeed the light of the world. But brothers and sisters, that wasn't true for everyone. Because there were disciples there that day. Peter and James and John and Matthew, the tax collector, who did listen to what Jesus had to say. And they were willing to receive His truth that they indeed were slaves of sin. And they were willing to say later, as Jesus said, are you two going to leave 
Peter says, where are we going to go, Lord? You alone have the words of truth that are going to give us life. And they were willing to follow him. And as they did, it's not as if suddenly they were zapped and their lives were tremendously better. That's the reverse. Sin gives you a taste of goodness and taste of exaltation and a taste of pleasure a little bit up front for an eternity of a lie and damage and death. And it's the reverse, isn't it? When Christ comes into our lives and brings truth into our lives. In the beginning, it's painful. Because he's getting rid of that sin and he's sanctifying us. In the beginning, it is hard. Far harder than our lives were, perhaps, while we were still sinning. When we bring couples back together again, and they have to deal with one another. When fathers have been out of the home, and we come to them and say, you need to leave, and they they lead, excuse me, and they come back into the home and try and become spiritual leaders. It's ugly in the beginning, brothers and sisters. Life was easier when you were long gone and being an absent father, somewhere far away from the home and sending paychecks home. When Christ comes in and that truth comes in, we start to see in the beginning how much we were enslaved by our sin and how much our our sin destroyed our lives, our marriages, our families, our church, our ministries. But then what happens, brothers and sisters, as we look at the lives of those disciples... We see step by step, not right away, step by step, over a period of time, word by word, the truth prevails in their lives. And that truth brings them to the cross and it brings them to the end of themselves. And it brings them to the point where they can no longer embrace the lie and all they can say is, Christ is Lord. Have it your way. Your will be done, not my will be done. And their lives are transformed. And those, brothers and sisters, are the men whom Jesus used to build the church. Persecution, martyrdom, hatred, lies. All of those things brought against those men. And yet, in spite of that, joyful, loving, rejoicing, filled with peace. Givers of life because... They have received life. Givers of light because they've received light. Givers of love and forgivers because they have received love and been forgiven. Because the truth has indeed set them free. Brothers and sisters, our our book club this year is going to be going through Ian Murray's biography of Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was, I believe, born in Ireland. She went out to be and started as a missionary to be an assistant to a husband and wife team who were doing evangelism in India. What's a young single girl from a good family going to India by herself? I'm sure the community at large, as far as respectable communities thought, here's this woman wasting her life. And she did not go with the intent of starting an orphanage or hospitals. Her intent was to assist in evangelism in India. But the truth took over her life. And the truth ruled in her life. And her life was submitted. And what's interesting when you go and read that biography is what she always held close to was the authority of God's Word. The inspiration, the verbal inspiration of God's Word. And she would be persecuted for that in her ministry by Christians from the inside. But brothers and sisters, that is the light and life in her. Where from the world's point of view, she was losing everything. And yet that's what the Lord would use to bring someone, young single lady, never married, who would go and enter into the temples in India where children were being bartered as prostitutes. And to rescue and to provide a home and a place where they could hear the gospel and the light of the good news. And those who were orphans became children of God. And those who were children of darkness became children of light. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, a child was born in a manger. And he came, brothers and sisters... To take our lies and instead to give us the truth. As many of you this Christmas will minister to those who are struggling with anxiety and depression. We must first ask ourselves, what are the areas of darkness in our lives that Christ has been working on, is working on, 
and is bringing the light of His truth. And the light of His truth, brothers and sisters, is that Christ is present, He is God, and He is indeed greater than our sin. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we celebrate something great. We celebrate your compassion. We celebrate your goodness. We celebrate, Lord Jesus, your light. Thank you for coming. Thank you for showing us how enslaved we can be from sin and how desperately we need a Savior whose light is greater than the lies of this world. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.